Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promoting for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hello and welcome to Cinematic Universe, the podcast that does for comic book movies what Unbreakable does for being alive, damn it. I'm Joe Cunningham and joining me to help make sense of the comics behind the movie are... Sir Patrick. And James Hunt. <laughs> we'll discuss the latest comic book movie and TV news um, before diving into our spoiler-filled discussion of M. Night Shyamalan's 2000 movie, Unbreakable. But before any of that, I'm going to ask Seven James to explain to me a comic book concept that as a movie fan, I just don't understand. And this week, you guys, I just basically want you to catch me up with what's going on in comics. Because I've changed jobs recently, I've moved house, I've fallen way behind on my comic book reading. And I don't think I've read anything that DC or Marvel have put out for about three or four months. Um, so, what am I missing? What should I be catching up on? Um have uh, have we have we got past the the Captain America and Rebirth like scandals and praise <laughs> and all that kind of stuff? Oh yeah, so so uh, yeah, so Secret Empire ended with the ending that they said wasn't going to be the ending, and actually was <laughs> the ending. Like all of that stuff about this is the actual Captain America. This isn't just going to be reversed with the Cosmic Cube. It wasn't the actual Captain America, and it was reversed with the Cosmic Cube. I mean, it was the actual Captain it, America. Well, no, it, but was, it was reversed, but it, but it now isn't because the point is now there are two Captain Americas in yeah. the Marvel Universe. Yeah. There is the evil one that was created by changing history, and there is the good one that was created by reversing it. But the evil one still exists. <clears throat> so, and there's Sam Wilson, but I presume he's is he, <laughs> no, is no, he no. Back, he, is he back he, to being Falcon? He he went back to being Falcon. Yeah. Yeah. I think he considered Some the brand right tainted. There. Yeah. Yeah, well, uh, fair enough. Yeah. I I can see that. Didn't <laughs> they didn't they do a thing kind of like similar to Superior Spider-Man where he was kind of like wandering around in like some dreamscape? It was that I was, guess you could that call was it the, <laughs> that was the memory of yeah. uh, the original which Captain which America. is kind of what they did with Superior, but Yeah. You know how Superior Spider-Man was good? Yeah. Um. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So what's what's happened since then? So, um, uh, James, give me some give me some Marvel stuff first. What's happening in Marvel? So the next thing that's happening in Marvel is Marvel Legacy, which is Marvel 
uh, renumbering a bunch of their series as if they had always been continuing with their original numbering. So basically, like, lately the sales have been pretty bad at Marvel and DC have been getting a lot of good press by uh, sort of courting older readers. And so Marvel's doing their version of that, which is to say, like, hey, it's not like Daredevil issue 18 anymore, it's Daredevil issue 595. Come back if you used to like Daredevil. Right. Um, what's actually happening within that? What's the, what's the gimmick? I mean, I don't really know if there's a story gimmick going on. Like, there is a kind of... There is a, a limited series attached to it, but I've got no idea what's going on in it. And as near as I can tell, like, the the story gimmick is we're bringing back classic characters. Like, the Generation X book is featuring the original Generation X team. Okay, so is it like, um, I don't know, is is Wolverine back hanging out with X-23? or uh, Like, there's a one-shot where that happens. Okay. I imagine, like, I would not be surprised if the original Wolverine is back fairly soon as a result of this. But, I mean, it's all leading up to the next event, obviously, because that's all that happens at Marvel. Which is, yeah, so uh, this is like a this is like a mini event. Like the Captain America Secret Empire was the main event. Yeah, and this is a mini event, and then there'll be a new big event next yeah, year. Yeah, and the the yeah. new big event is the return of Jean Grey, which they I like in the marketing they've advertised this as the return of brackets adult Jean Grey to distinguish it from the other Jean Grey that is currently running around. Right. Okay, that's <laughs> happened before, though, hasn't it? <laughs> I didn't yeah. even know she was gone. Where is yeah. she? Where's, where's she been? She, well, she's been dead since Grant Morrison killed her the second time. But uh, she's, okay. she showed up occasionally to be like, hey, don't forget. Did, did original Jean turn up, realise that everyone likes teen Jean much more than they ever liked her and go away again? <laughs> that is scandalous, because teen Jean is much less interesting than adult Jean. No, I disagree. I, th- I think, yeah. Incorrect. <laughs> my, my only hope I is I always that find Jean more interesting as a teenage character. I would prefer Jean Grey to come back and just, like... I know Cyclops is dead, but I would prefer Gene and Cyclops to be split up. Well, it's weird. It's weird that we've had longer. We've had so long now since, like, this, since Scott and Emma became a thing. Like, it, it's it's been established canon for like nearly twenty years. Them them as a couple, or at least them as an on and off couple. Like, it's it's been nearly twenty years since Scott and Gene were a couple. Yeah, it's just like that 15, that's not 15, the status quo years. anymore. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, the thing is, both Scott and Emma are dead now at the moment, so it's... I didn't know Emma was dead, but I'm, I'm not pretty sure she's dead. Very much outside of um, I didn't uh, read, Squirrel I Girl didn't, and Miles. I didn't read a lot of X-Men <laughs> while they were dealing with Inhumans, so I'm a bit mm. patchy, but I believe they're both dead. Speaking of Miles, yeah, I um, as I was browsing Forbidden Planet the other day, I saw like Spider-Man issue 3, or Spider-Man 2 issue Spider-Man three. 2 is finally happening with Bendis and Pacelli. It's weird, though, because... Up until this point, like, I don't think there's been any impression given in, <coughs> at least from what I can recall of reading of, of Miles' stuff, that he remembers that he comes from another universe. Um, I, so I've been reading it as well. I, m- my impression was that he, 
he knew, but he just kind of wasn't. It wasn't really anything that he was, was worrying say, about. He knew, but he'd gotten over it by the time we. Yeah. But the thing yeah. is, he shouldn't have got over it because it's no. a really big deal, and the story doesn't work <laughs> if you know he should be dealing with the consequences of that. Like, and so should like Ganky and Lana, who I think I, are the only other two they, characters who came yeah, over. They, I think don't, they remember. don't remember. I think he remembers because yeah. he was the de- molecule man. They're dead. Seb, they are they are dead. All of those people. <laughs> That's are the dead. thing. Like everyone in in Ultimate Spider Man is dead, and everyone in the Ultimate Universe, apart from the characters that got rescued by uh, Al Ewing in his Ultimate series, um, in a in a massive surprise twist. But um, so was everyone in the main universe. Everyone <laughs> in the main universe is dead. There's only there's only like fifty people in that universe now that are the original versions of those char- yeah. of those characters. But let's not. I don't think Marvel even know exactly what happened there. Um, it's kind of like with DC Rebirth in that it's just, uh, these are the versions now, just go with it. Um, but yeah, no, so Spider-Man 2, with, as of the third issue, uh, which just came out last week, we finally know who, well, there's two things. One, we finally know what Peter found when he Googled for Miles Morales. It's, I mean, the thing is, the, the issue where all of that is explained is a typical Bendis issue in that it's an entire issue of flashbacks. So, like, we've had three issues of Spider-Man and almost nothing has actually happened so far. <laughs> but the flashback story of who Miles is is so good. And actually, yeah, let, let, let's, let's say that we'll have cut out or bleeped me saying that. It's Bendis writing a particular character who I won't name that Bendis always writes brilliantly. So in much the same way as whenever Bendis goes back to Jessica Jones, like he turns into good Bendis again. He's done exactly the same thing here with this issue and this character. And so it's just a really good flashback one shot explaining who um, 616 Miles is. Okay, uh, great. Should we do a bit of DC before we move on? What's what's happening? Yeah, because I don't have a clue what's happening at DC. All I see is <laughs> things say things that say DC Metal and have shiny covers. Yeah, are they are they still in the process of being reborn? Um, so the books do still have the rebirth banners on them. Um, we just found out in Action Comics that the mysterious Mister Oz is not Ozymandias. Uh, <laughs> oh, surprise! It's Jorel, except it's not going to actually be Jorel. It's going to be evil clone or something it's not going to be the real Jorel but he was revealed as Jorel um DC haven't got as far as doing the Superman Watchmen thing yet that's going to happen uh I think in November that's kicking off um so that is going to be like they have revealed they've revealed covers like with Superman on with the Watchmen font alongside it what's it called is it called uh oh I've forgotten what it's called (laughs) I'm Googling DC Watchman Superman. Uh, it is called Doomsday Clock. Um, and it is essentially a Superman and Dr. Manhattan story from the sound of it. Right. Um, so, oh, in fact, Hollywood Reporter have done a, sto- a story like yesterday with Jeff Johns talking about it. So that probably reveals some stuff. <coughs> I mean, I don't can, know I, yet. can I just jump in with my Watchmen rant here, which is that I don't see how anyone who professes to actually like Watchmen, and this goes for Damon Lindelof too, like <laughs> anyone who professes to like Watchmen can work on it in any way I, 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 the thing, on the though, one hand you... i agree but on the other hand we already lost that battle with before watchmen so if that if those if that floodgates already opened then ugh, why not and do you do you not think that like jeff johns seems like i haven't read many of his comics he seems like one of the great kind of salesmen the great the great kind of showman in comics right now and it feels to me like less this being less a case of dc going everything's going back to the start again we're stripping things back to basics jump back on our comics 
because that's what they did with the new 52 and it didn't really work. It seems like what drew people in to Rebirth as a concept was that first issue, was that Rebirth issue one, which just had everyone buzzing on the internet. Like there was, it seemed like there were stories everywhere about it and that it was teeing up kind of like crazy stuff happening with The Flash and crazy stuff happening with Batman. And then there was this Watchmen hint at the end and everyone went like, whoa, like I want to stick around to see what happens with that stuff. Um, I mean, that would explain why it's taken them like two years to get to it. Yeah, well, why, why rush? Um, but yeah, I mean, we don't know how that's going to play out until, obviously, it actually starts to come out. But yeah, so metal is the big thing at the moment. Actually, just before I get on to talking about metal, because there's two things that I'm, I'm buying from DC at the moment that I've actually decided to start buying in print, because I now work, like, literally a minute's walk away from a comic shop, so I've actually gone back onto buying certain things in print. Um, and I wasn't going to with metal... Um, but I really liked the shiny cover of the first issue. So, um, especially because the characters on the cover were arranged in such a formation that they were forming a sign of the devil hand sign, um, like a, a metal sign. And I just really liked that. Um, but, but also I was buying something else at the time and I needed another comic to take me over the card limit in the shop. So, um, cause the thing, the thing that I decided to buy every issue of in print and, um, I think I'm being vindicated because it's selling out and going to multiple printings is Tom King's Mr. Miracle series, which has had two issues so far. Um, the second one was very good, but the first one is unbelievably good as a He's first doing, issue. It, it's, um, vis- it's vision at DC, right? Essentially. Yeah. It's yeah. a, it's a different kind of thing and it is a different artist. It's him with, with, uh, Mitch Gerads who he did. Oh, what is the name of that series that they did together that I haven't read? Uh, I'm going to Google again. Sorry. Uh, I'll know it. Um, <laughs> Well, I'm not, I'll know it when film. I see it. <laughs> no dead air. Um, but, you know, Gerards does the sort of... Is it Gerards or Gerards? I don't even know how to pronounce his name. Um, but does that kind of nine-panel grid thing that Tom King likes a lot, and they, they work together on a fantastic issue of, of Batman with Swamp Thing in it as well. Um, I can't find the name. This is all just coming up with, with stuff about Mr. Miracle. Um, I've totally forgotten the series. A Sheriff of Babylon. There we go. Um, it took a long time for that to come up in, in Google results. Um, but no, it's just, it's only two issues in and it's going to be a 12 issue run, but it's, it's really, really great. It's Tom King on really strong form and it, it's, I mean, it's probably a little bit of hyperbole in terms of like what he's been like over the last couple of years, but I feel like this is a, this in particular and kind of like Vision is a series that people are really going to remember in future. And it's a really nice one to have as an object, like, you know, to actually have the issues month on month. Um, so like seriously, as far as DC goes, be reading that. That is the, the thing above everything you should be reading at DC at the moment. Um, but Metal is interesting because it's Scott Snyder and Greg Capullo who obviously did that really long run on, on Batman. Like one of, one of the few, unequivocally successful things about the new 52 was was that run you know they they were doing batman for the entire run of the new 52 and it went on a bit in some uh places like they did the year zero storyline which to be honest i didn't think was great but they did some really good work on it the interesting thing about this is that it's it's snyder going a lot more batshit mental no pun intended because it is based around batman um, and it feels in a lot of ways like it owes a lot to Grant Morrison in kind of the style of it and the fact that it's based around the DC multiverse, which Morrison's been kind of instrumental in re-establishing with things like multiversity. <laughs> um, and it's weird because Snyder's Batman run felt so much like 
you know, he was following on from Morrison's Batman. And to his credit, he really worked hard to establish a, a tone and a way of doing Batman that was very different from what Morrison had done. Um, so it's interesting seeing him and Capullo now doing a comic that just feels so much like a Grant Morrison series. Um, but the premise of it is essentially um, that we know about the DC multiverse, um, but in much the same way as there is dark matter, um, there is also a dark multiverse. There is essentially a flip side to the entire DC multiverse, but in much the same way as dark matter doesn't interact with matter it, it the dark multiverse doesn't except it's starting to do so um there's a whole load of stuff <laughs> going a on lot, there's a lot about that science that i take issue with <laughs> <laughs> well it's all theoretical anyway isn't it and it's all, <laughs> the interesting thing about it is actually if you go back to crisis on infinite earths the whole thing was that the anti-monitor came from an anti-matter universe and now it's like there's a dark matter multiverse and it's like that's pretty much the same premise when you in, in, in comic book terms. It's pretty much the same premise when you boil it down. Is there um, also so, a dark antimatterverse? Uh, yeah. I don't know. There could well be. Well, Is there a dark antimonitor? Yeah. Um, so it's it's just basically all about basically there's some stuff going on with Batman and this substance, this metal. Um, there's a, there's apparently a bunch of different metals. I think one of them is actually called Batmanium or something ridiculous. It's, it's that it's that level of deliberate ridiculousness, and it and it's touching on some stuff that was in uh, Snyder's Batman run as well. Um, what it really seems to be about at the moment is throwing a load of crazy stuff at the page, bringing in a load of different evil alternate versions of DC characters, um, all of whom seem to be versions of Batman. So, like, there's a Flash version of Batman and a Green Lantern version of Batman, but they all look like the Dark Judges from 2000 AD for some reason. They haven't kind of properly turned up in the comic yet, though. Um, and it's really just, as I say, like, it's hard to really get a handle on what's going on at the moment and it's really just been something to kind of enjoy the ridiculousness of moment to moment like there's been like really great moments such as um um using the um dark side has been turned into a baby and used as a weapon um and the big reveal at the end of the first issue i say reveal but what actually happened was it got given to all of the uh, newspapers and stuff well you know the newspapers that bother to report on comics in america before the comic came out so it was spoiled for everyone um but the sandman turned up um the daniel version of dream um huh, okay. appeared at the end of the first issue with neil gaiman's blessing and neil gaiman has been consulted on it and stuff because neil gaiman has to be consulted if you're going to use sandman in a dc comic he's pretty much the i think he's the only person at dc or marvel that has that right <laughs> over a yeah, character well, that they, they own want to keep him happy um exactly so he might do more sandman yeah it's, i'm pretty sure that from a legal point of view they own that character because that character is a derivation of an existing mm -hmm. dc character anyway but they have always taken great pains to consult oh, yeah. Gaiman whenever they've wanted to, to use the Sandman. The, so. the difference between Sandman and Watchmen is Alan Moore's definitely not going to do more Watchmen for them. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, so, um, yeah, so Sandman turned up. We don't know why. We don't know why he's in it, but yeah. Um, that actually makes so me interested was... enough to go and have a look. Yeah. Okay, well, um, all of that stuff that you just said, Seb, I think might be a good opportunity to segue into the news um, where there hasn't been an awful lot of news over the last couple of weeks, um, as anyone who listened to the mini-sode already will know. And um, we're basically having to take some news that we've already uh, heard on the mini-sode, um, that I've already talked about on the mini-sode, but I thought we could talk about with a bit more depth and get your guys' um, comic book nerdy eyes on the, on this. Um, Nerd? And <laughs> <laughs> it's news to me. 
<laughs> um, and we'll start off with um, the the DC one, the um, Arrowverse crossover this year, the Supergirl, Flash, Arrow, Legends of Tomorrow four-part crossover, uh, will be called Crisis on Earth X, and all the divisions are going to be kind of like evil doppelganger versions of all of the heroes, which, Seb, sounds not dissimilar to what you were just describing. <laughs> well, to be more specific, actually, and I think you get a hint of this in that in that poster that they've done for it that um, Phil Jimenez has drawn, um, because you can see it in Supergirl's outfit. Earth-X is not specifically the evil counterparts Earth. That's actually Earth-3 in classic DC continuity. That's where um, Ultraman and, and Superwoman and, and Owlman and stuff come from. Um, Earth-X, or Earth-10, as it has been re-established as in, in the post-Grant Morrison uh, multiverse, um, is the world where the Nazis won World War Two and Superman's rocket crashed in um, Nazi-occupied Czechoslovakia. Um, so it is basically, it's, it's not just that they're evil superheroes, it's that they're Nazi superheroes. Um, so. I don't think, they're not, are they, are they doing Nazis? Well, l- look at, look at, look at Supergirl's outfit on that poster. She's wearing a black outfit and her insignia is a red lightning bolt. So that is the costume that the super characters wear in, in, than the Nazi verse comics. One of I one mean, of the issues of multiversity was about Overman. Over he's he's called Overman rather than Superman for obvious reasons. Um, I guess it wouldn't be beyond the CW shows to do something that nakedly political right now. Um, I mean, yeah, the timing doesn't seem great to be honest. Well, no, I, I I do wonder whether it's intentional. I mean, the season finale of Supergirl last year was called Nevertheless She Persisted. The mm-hmm. episode before that was called Resist. Um, there, and, and obviously we, we saw the pictures of uh, Melissa Benoist, <coughs> Melissa Benoist, or uh, however you say it. Uh, she was on the Women's March last year and she posted that picture. And um, I, 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 you saying that makes me wonder whether they will actually. I mean, I don't think it's going to be the most like in depth kind of like. It, these are the CW shows. It's probably not going to be like really intelligent satire or anything like that. But you know, it might it might be a li- a little bit more overt than you would have imagined. Maybe. Lee's mm. Nick Spencer is going to get an easy time of it. <laughs> um, the other thing that's worth noting about that as well is that they've announced that um, the Ray is going to be in it and Russell Tovey is playing him. Which I is... love this set. <laughs> I, first of all, I love Russell Toby. Um, I mean, I don't always love the things he's in, but I tend to enjoy him in them. Um, I just uh, wonder how they're going to fit his ears under the Ray's helmet because <laughs> that's a challenge. But he's 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 an openly gay superhero, um, so that's you would imagine that the way the CW shows are, they they won't shy away from having that be the case as well, and it's so that's quite an interesting. Uh, yeah. Um, let's talk about a show that both of you two do absolutely lap up, and I imagine next year we'll be watching the episodes of as soon as they are available. Oh, um, yes. Riverdale. Unless it goes crap. Um, <laughs> which is the worry it might. <laughs> uh, I, I think it already maybe tipped into it. Uh, no, it didn't. It did. The end of no, it didn't. The, no, it didn't. The season finale was No, terrible. it didn't. No, no it, it wasn't. No, it wasn't. Yeah. <laughs> Who did it? It oh, was, was the that, TV event of the year. It was that guy. What, what were you expecting? Who did it? No one. Uh, I was <laughs> expecting something on the level of Twin Peaks. 
talk about the best TV of this year, you guys, eh? Mm. What do you think of the Twin Peaks finale? Did you, did you enjoy that? I've never watched any Twin Peaks ever. Oh, yeah, same. <laughs> well, there's some homework. Um, so Riverdale is getting a spin-off. It is going to be called Chilling Adventures of Sabrina. Hey, Sabrina, the teenage witch... Is it Melissa Joan Hart coming back, you guys? What's happening? Explain I mean, she this has to, me. to play Hilda, doesn't she? It's like no, there's no imagine. point doing the show if she's not going to play Hilda. That, um, it's, that's, it's already a given. For those who don't remember the 90s show, Hilda was the fun ant, and, and Zelda, is it, was the was the stuffy ant. So yeah. obviously she yes. has to play Hilda. Um, I mean, play Salem? <laughs> you know, Reynolds, I had a thought Ryan, about that Ryan the Reynolds other day. Pops someone up in an episode of Sabrina. I'm pretty sure. So maybe you can get Ryan Reynolds to do a. So did uh, wasn't um, Paul Feig was in it, wasn't he? Maybe they should get him to voice. The was, it, was he one of the teachers? Or he was something? one of the. Te- he was. He was. He was a teacher. Yeah. So th- this character is going to be introduced on Riverdale season two, and then he's going to sp- um, spin off into her own series. Which I think we were all kind of even even midway through season one, we were all going, "Oh, is Sabrina going to turn up?" Mm. I hope she does. And now it's there's there's no no two ways about it. Yes, she will be turning up and. <clears throat> Yes, she will be getting her own show. Yeah, like I would and have, this, I would this sounds put... perfect for what they're doing. I mean, yeah, it's, what's interesting is is that there, you know, there isn't actually anything supernatural in Riverdale. It just feels like it, mm. and I kind of like the I like the idea of bringing Sabrina in. What what I would potentially like to see is the like. She, you know, she is a witch and has magical powers, but to the characters of Riverdale, that's not apparent, if you see what I mean. So, like, when she's kind of in yeah. her own show, you know that it's real, but it's not that you're suddenly introducing magic and all the other characters in Riverdale are aware of that, because that would change the premise of Riverdale considerably. Yeah, I would keep so they it have to very work, ambiguous that, that balance. and just yeah. have, like, unlikely things happening. I think season two will see... I think season two will see supernatural stuff start to seep into Riverdale. Um, and I think it will happen slowly. And I think Sabrina's introduction will be part of that. I mean, Cause it feels, it feels like a show where it's already, like you said, like where it's already happening, but we just haven't seen the evidence yet. Like mm. if Jason Blossom walked through a scene in season two, I would not be at all. No, it's, you yeah. Know? <laughs> so, yeah. Um, I mean, and I, I, I mean, I imagine they'll cast a young actress who we we probably haven't heard of. Mm. Um, but you're right. I think the the things we can speculate is, uh, and guess about is like, yeah, who might who might be? Oh man, I thought I thought I like thought that. just popped into my head though, uh, where because I thought, well, maybe they'll cast someone who, like with Cole Sprouse, who famously played a child on a previous program, and now all I can think is that. Someone have suggested for things before, but it should be Keenan Shipka. I was literally as soon as you started talking, I was like, it should be Keenan Shipka, shouldn't it? Yeah. It won't be, but that it won't would be, be awesome. Because we're not that lucky. <laughs> okay, um, but yeah, I think we don't know much about this yet, um, other than I think it's fair to say that we're all looking forward to it. I, I, I mean, I joked slightly with Riverdale. I had a lot of fun with the first season. I don't think I got quite as invested as you guys did. <laughs> Um, but there was, there's no I, doubt that it was fun and that it had fun characters. It's just any time a show is that kind of it embraces its kind of campiness so much. <laughs> I mean, like, what was it? Three episodes in that Betty was donning don, dominatrix gear and torturing someone in a pool. And it was like, a bit later she was, in than that. <laughs> no, it, it was like episode it, three. It, <laughs> and, and, and she four. was, and she, and she was like channeling the spirit almost of her missing sister. <laughs> mm-hmm. It was, and I was like, wow, okay, this. this I show think, is I not think that I would about. quite like to stress with Riverdale. Actually, you talk about like kind of getting quite invested in it. 
getting invested in it was kind of part of the fun and yeah. other getting invested in it with other people was was particularly part of the fun it's one of those shows and it's kind of like when you watch something like the apprentice or when it was good the x factor you watch it and tweet at the same time because you know other people are like i don't think i would have been as into riverdale if i wasn't reacting to it on a weekly basis with friends who were also and it was almost like this kind of over exaggerated like I think it's a very good show, but I think there's an over-exaggerated emotional investment in it that comes from geeking out with your friends about it, you know? Yeah, I get that now with podcasts. Like, if I know there's a show that I listen to, like, a reaction podcast about, it's like, it's not even it's not even the live tweeting anymore. It's like, I'll catch up with it. And I know that my fake friends who talk to me through my headphones once a week will, <laughs> will, will also be able to enjoy this alongside me. Hmm. Ah, okay. Well, that's the um, that's the CW news from this week then, um, where it seems like everything's happening. I think we get this every year. Kind of the end of the summer is a bit of a dark spot for movie news, mm-hmm. and I think things will start to kick up a bit. I mean, we're, we're ramping up to a couple of uh, big superhero movies uh, throughout the rest of this year, and there's a there's a couple of little pieces of news that are, that are related to the film that we're about to discuss, you guys, um, and we can probably mention those. As part of that discussion, uh, because we are going to move on now to our spoiler-filled discussion of M. Night Shyamalan's Unbreakable. So let's take a listen to the trailer for the movie, and we'll be back with our discussion in just a second. This episode of Cinematic Universe is brought to you by our backers on Patreon. If you head on over to patreon.com forward slash cinematic universe, you will see that we have revised our rewards and tiers system on there. And one of the changes we have made is that if you back us at the $20 level, we will plug something of your choice in this special section here. The This episode is brought to you by Slot. So if you have a look, think, is there anything you would like us to promote on a future episode, then you can throw some cash our way via Patreon. And this is the point in the podcast where we will tell all of our listeners that this episode is brought to you by you. You're in the emergency room in the Philadelphia City Hospital. I'm going to ask you some questions. Where are you sitting on the train? Against the window. In the passenger car? Yes. You're certain you were in the passenger car? Yeah. Where are the other passengers? Your train derailed. Too fast. A second train collided with yours after it derailed. The debris spread over one mile. Why are you looking at me like that? There are two reasons why I'm looking at you like this. One, because it seems you aren't the only survivor of this train wreck. And two, you don't have a scratch on you. I know what's going through your mind right now. You're searching for meaning in all of this. No one thing. 131 people died so you could finally understand the destiny for which you were born. 
Are you ready for the truth? Okay, um, so that was the trailer for Unbreakable, you guys. Um, I wanted to start this off by um, giving you a look at a few facts that I found on a Wikipedia page. Now, <laughs> did you know that there are thirty-five pages and one hundred and twenty-four illustrations <laughs> in the average comic book? I'm glad you. I'm glad you brought this up because I, I wanted to do. I wanted to do an update to this. <laughs> well, so there's there's also, I mean, a, a single issue ranges in price from one dollar to over one hundred and forty thousand dollars. One hundred and seventy-two thousand comics are sold in the U.S. every day. Over sixty-two million seven hundred eighty thousand comics each year. The average comic book collector, in fact, owns three thousand three hundred twelve comics and will spend approximately one year of his or her life reading them. That's um, way above so that's, that was from that was from Wiki- Wikipedia. Um, no, no, sorry, that is the opening frame of Unbreakable. What so the, the fuck? So there's two things here. One, I, I can I can actually uh, tell you whether or not I am above or below the average comic collector because uh, I do actually have um, the comics that I own um, catalogued in an app. Uh, but nice. it turns I out the, I have the same for my movies. <laughs> there you go. It might might be the same if it, if it's the collectors one. It might because they do they do them for various different types of media. I use I use Delicious Library three. Ah. I haven't heard of that. <laughs> it's, um, it's really good, you guys. You scan, you scan the barcodes in your phone, and it updates the it updates your digital uh, DVD shelf. <laughs> yeah, this is this is the same with this comics thing. And then I yeah. use it to generate a list that I that I have an HTML version of linked to on my site, so that if I'm out and about, I can see what my wish list and what I have is. Um, nice. Anyway, but yeah, no, I I actually only have around about. 2,200 comics. Seriously? Uh, so I, I am I'm a below average collector. That doesn't include graphic novels, that's just single issues. Jesus. Um, but, yeah. I think, I've, at the moment, I've got about 6,000, but I think at one point I had like 10, and I've been aggressively selling them. <laughs> well, I can understand why you've been space. aggressively selling them, if that's how many you've got. But <laughs> That is yeah. insane. That's literally <laughs> insane. Wow. But yeah, I have about 600 films on DVD or Blu-ray. So... <laughs> I mean, I know that's a lot, but... Five, no, in fact, that's all I have. 502, I just opened up my library. <laughs> it is... Um, the thing The thing about these facts is that they're... I mean, I can see what it's doing in terms of, oh, this film's going to be about comic books, and here's some facts about comics, but none of these facts are either relevant or interesting. Nope. Um, and <laughs> But I was curious about the one about 172,000 comics are sold in the US every day, over 62 million each year. And I was like, wow, that really paints a picture of a, a comics industry in really rude health. And like, I, I bet those figures, like if you looked up a similar figure now, I bet it'd be much lower. Um, and it's actually the opposite, because in 2000, the comics industry really wasn't in great health at all. I was going to say. Um, and, and while 172,000 a day sounds like a lot, it's not really that many. And like nowadays, to be a top-selling comic, you only really need to sell like, like the really top-selling stuff might sell over a hundred thousand copies a month. But you can, in a quiet month, you can top the charts with like eighty thousand or so copies say, in- if there isn't a big number one launching that same month. Um, but to my surprise, um, so that figure of sixty-two. 
uh, 0.7 million sold per year. I think they've actually only got that. I mean, I don't know where they got these figures from, but I have a feeling they got the 172,000 and multiplied it by 365 to get the 62,780 because that, that's exactly 365 times that, or they divided the other one. Um, but I went on, uh, um, the diamond comics figures. Uh, well, actually, um, the, the site is, uh, uh Comicron, uh, with a CH, but it's, it, it uh, collates information from Diamond, the comic distributors, um, and discovered actually that, that that 62 million figure is not actually correct uh, for the year of 2000. Um, in 2000, um, the total sales just for Diamond's top 300 comics was 69.2 million. So the overall figure, you imagine, would have been higher because there would have also been the comics outside the top 300. Um, and in 2016... Um, the comics within the top 300 at Diamond actually sold 89.3 million and, um, everything, like outside of the top 300 as well, the total was 99 million. And though that figure has actually been rising steadily, um, over the past 10 years or more. So the comics industry isn't in the best health it's ever been, but actually it was worse in 2000. <laughs> I was going to say 2000 was a real nadir sales. Well, it was. It was just after Marvel's bankruptcy, and it was before... It, well, it was kind of at the beginnings of Marvel's renaissance. Like, Ultimate Spider-Man started to happen that year. Yeah, um, well, it was before I, I think of Crusader sort of 2001 was... as the year that really kicks it. Crusada yeah, had yeah. come in by 2000, but... Um, I mean, maybe not when this film was being made, but... Yeah, 2000, 2001 is when you had the Marvel renaissance, essentially. Mm-hmm. And to think, just on this very same podcast, James bristled at me referring to you guys as comic book nerds. <laughs> <laughs> so, this title card, or this, this, this information card that pops up at the start of the movie, to me, feels more than anything like M. Night Shyamalan kind of... Like, this was the sheet of paper he took into his pitch for this movie <laughs> with the studio boss and going, look, no, comics are a big deal, you yeah. guys. People care about comics. <laughs> look no, at the potential forget- audience. <laughs> Yeah, forget that Batman and Robin just came out. What you don't know is that the superhero movies are about to bounce back in a big old way. You're going to get X-Men and Spider-Man. But obviously this is kind of, this is, I think, Shyamalan saying A, to the people who are, who are making this movie, who are financing it, but B, also to anyone kind of watching the film who has at some kind of vague idea that this is comic booky or superhero-y. Like, no, you guys, these are a, these are a serious art form and you should take, you should take, you should be taking this seriously because that's what I'm about to do for the next mm-hmm. two hours. You really, you really get that sense. And I said, you were talking about the way this movie was marketed. Um, and I think that maybe that was reflected in the way the movie was marketed as well, because it's not marketed at all. Like you would expect <laughs> it, if anyone it was wasn't marketed around at the time. A lot like, Here's another film from Here's the Sixth Sense. Here's another film guy. from the guy who did the Sixth Sense. I mean, the posters are just, they're just like, uh, uh, yeah, it, it's, it's just it, moody, scary faces of Bruce Willis and Samuel L. Jackson and, <laughs> and some shattered glass. And it's just, it makes it look like, I mean, I, I was talking to my dad about this. My dad's quite a big fan of this film. And I said, oh, you know, the, the posters made it look like a, a psychological thriller. And he said, well, it is kind of a psychological thriller. And I was like, yeah, it is. But it is also a pretty straight down the line superhero origin story. And, and you could market it as one or the other. But the but the, the posters really make it seem like it's a creepy horror film. And, it, <coughs> and it's not that at all. I mean, it is yeah. psychological, but it's not. It's not the sixth sense. Is the point? It's not. It's not the sixth sense because it is a comic book movie. Because it is a movie that's that's playing with the idea of superheroes and comic books. 
But having said that, I think it, I do think it does a kind of like a horror version of that. Not that anything, not that much that's happening in there is explicitly horrific, but I think the, the lens through which Shyamalan is looking at these heroes is, is very dark and twisted. And it is, and it is, it is like, I mean, you get the sense almost of like a superhero. Like as, as the powers as a curse more than anything. Um, th- there's just so many scenes which, in another movie, would feel triumphant that have this kind of this tinge of horror to them. And I think the the one that stands out for me the most is when Bruce Willis at the start, towards the start of the movie, walks away from the crash from the plane from the uh, from the train crash that kills everyone else, hmm. and he walks out and he's. He's the only survivor. And in another film, that could be this triumphant moment of like, Jesus Christ, this guy lived. And instead, what Shyamalan has him do is walk out through a hospital waiting room where the families of everyone else in the crash has sat around who are not going to get to see their living relatives. And Willis feels guilt and nothing else. And you kind of, you see these people staring at him and not going like, wow, look at this guy who managed to walk away. It's, why did this guy get to survive and the person that I love die? You know? And, like, the mm. scene where Willis is lifting the weights and, you and like, this is him discovering his powers, but it's almost like it's... It feels like a, a scene of trauma for Willis. And, the, I mean, the, the scene where he rescues the girls is, like, you know, that's his big heroic, his superhero <laughs> launch moment. And that's pretty bloody horrific especially seeing as one of the people who he's trying to rescue dies or is already dead yeah. um yeah so i so i don't think that the marketing is entirely dishonest but i do think i think perhaps maybe the studio were trying to hide more than Shyamalan was that this was a comic book yeah movie. i mean it's it's, it's so not it's that... not necessarily like i say that i think it's dishonest i what i think is interesting is if this film came out now it unquestionably would be marketed as a take Shy- on superhero movies. superheroes yeah 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 you would get a poster that looked like comic book artwork but you know maybe had a sort of slightly darker edge to it or, or that kind of thing it would be marketed I'm not going to say we've marketed like Kickass because obviously Kickass was marketed in, in a very aggressive and, and kind of light-hearted way, but along those lines, but in a way that would be appropriate for the tone of this film, like it, it would make clear to people this is a riff on superheroes. Whereas, yeah, it's very much hiding it. Um, I mean, yeah. how like I don't think the movie makes it very clear that it's a riff on superheroes until quite far through, even in itself. Which I think is which I think is another reason why Shyamalan's got that. I mean, no, I, I mean, I think it does. I think it's constantly he wears to a superhero you. costume with his with his character's name written on it. Like his his superhero name is Security, and he wears a cape with that written on it. Yeah, yeah. Like, but like I'm, he's unambiguously a superhero. And there's, and there's all the comic, there's all the comic book store stuff. And I, the thing is, I don't think when I watched this as a kid, I, I thought it, I say a kid as a teenager, I don't think I watched it and went, oh, that's a superhero movie. But yeah, um, I like I remember watching it in the cinema and not really like in the third act. I was like, oh, okay, it's like he is a superhero now. See, I I saw it a couple of years like after it had come out. Riff on it. 
and I and I, I saw it after people had very much talked about it as oh this is a film that's that's about superheroes and um you know killing joke is obviously a big influence on it and that kind of thing I very much came to it looking for that angle um, right yeah I mean, I mean and I should say at this point spoilers for all other M Night Shyamalan movies and given that he's a he's a he's a twist master like <clears throat> If, if, you know, if there are any of his other films, because there are various ones will come up, and I'm about to reference a specific one. Um, if you don't want to have any Shyamalan movie spoiled for you, um, stop listening. So I don't know. We were talking about the the marketing and the poster. Um, I don't know whether you recall the poster for Split, which um, is James McAvoy stood behind, well, behind some cracked glass, basically. Yeah. Um, and now when you see them put next to each other, it's yeah. absolutely, it's, it's brilliant. And, um, what I find fascinating is that that's, that's another film where I, he's, from what I've heard, again, I've still not watched it, that is completely transformed. You're kind of like, if you watch it a second time in the knowledge that, oh shit, it was a, it was a comic book movie again, that you see it through a complete different lens. And I think, I think it's. I think it is. It's bizarrely easy to miss in Unbreakable that it's a comic book movie, but it's also once you watch it with that knowledge, it becomes clear quite how explicit it is. And I think that that starts off with the way that Shyamalan frames just about every shot. Like the shots are constructed in a way that the characters always have frames around them. You, the amount of times that you see. Bruce Willis stood through a door frame, for example, mm. <laughs> or the amount of times, I mean, in that first scene where he sat between the, the chairs, the camera's kind of like a couple of rows back from where he's actually sat and it's sliding between the gaps in the chairs to see him. And every time it's as if there has been this artificial frame constructed around him and the camera's then moving to get a, like a glance at, Okay, now I'm gonna, now the camera's going to move to this side just so we can see just his hand taking off the wedding ring, and then we're going to move back over to this way so we can see him looking out the window, and then we're going to move over one more so we can see the girl who's sitting down next to him, um, and it does it the whole way through. And the one thing that strikes me about this film, and Shyamalan's one of, uh, for me, one of the most fascinating filmmakers of the 21st century, um, mainstream American filmmakers, anyway. Uh, just to see kind of what's happened to his career, but also kind of the artistry of this guy who is kind of like incredibly mainstream, but I think brings brings something a little bit more than that. And the amount of times that you see that shine through in this film, um, and it's and it, and it's great just from a from a comic book perspective to see him doing that and creating this comic book look that isn't so intrusive that it feels like it is that it is like distracting I mean, you in any way when you're watching the film but I, also like when you when you spot it 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 adds so much more. I do feel like Ang Lee could have lent could have learned a thing or two from him. <laughs> we haven't done that one yet, have we? No. I mean Ang Lee <laughs> right. did something very similar but it was distracting. Yeah. It was like, "Ah, oh, I see you, I see what you're doing. You uh, you're still doing it." Okay. <laughs> okay, keep going. Okay. <sighs> Yeah, that would be a good one to do. Let's let's. Uh, well, uh, uh, here's here's the thing. I've never actually seen Ang, Ang Lee's Hulk. Never, <laughs> never done it. So that's gonna be that is gonna be fun when we get to it on the podcast. Wow. Um, 
I'm, I've now, I, it's now at the point where I'm actively like not watching it so I can experience it for the first time when we get to it on the pod. It, it, it has Sam Elliott's moustache as General Ross, which is pretty special. But always, always yeah. a treat. Um, so yeah, what what's your guys' relationship with Shyamalan then? Like, how, how what, which of his I, films have you seen? Which I have you saw enjoyed? this. I saw this in the cinema, having not seen Sixth Sense. Wow. <laughs> Because I, not, I don't think there's many people around the world who can say that. I, I saw this long before I saw Sixth Sense. Um, I, I didn't see Sixth Sense back when it came out and, and was a big deal. It wasn't until quite a while afterwards that I saw that. Well, like, the reason I went to see this was because I used to read a Usenet um, group called Records Comics Marvel. And like on that, someone did a post saying basically like, there are a whole bunch of people saying, like, I'm not going to tell you anything about the film, but you guys have to go and see Unbreakable. And so, like, I gathered that there was some kind of comics element to it, but that's all I knew when I went. Just that, and it's the Sixth Sense guy. So, me and Nikki went and saw it at the cinema. And she, like, I remember she um, had seen the trailer and had no idea that there was any sort of comics component to it. She thought it was going to be about a guy, like, figuring out how he survived a train crash yeah yeah and i mean and everyone i think as well the other the, the other thing is that i think a lot of people went into this movie given that it was Shyamalan, it was like and and this certainly became the case with a lot of his movies on this okay what's the twist gonna be mm-hmm. and i i think what's what's great about the twist in this movie is that it's kind of it's kind of there on the surface the whole time um in a it in in kind of the way that it is in the sixth sense that it's all laid out for you, but it's it doesn't feel like so much of a, a twist and a shocking reveal in this one. Like the fact that the fact that Elijah orchestrates the train crash almost to me feels incidental to the fact. I th- I think the reveal is you've been watching a superhero and a supervillain this whole time, and I've ki- I kind of told you that. Mm-hmm. But I, I, how long did it take you to figure it I out? I mean, that's definitely and, how it came across to me when I saw it the first time. Yeah, and when you saw it the first time, were you were you aware that that's what you were watching? Not, again, given- like, I thought it was a kind of psychological thriller with a riff on superheroes. In, and it wasn't until he's, like, in the hood, sort of feeling his way through the crowd, that I was like, okay, he is actually a superhero. But the, I mean, specifically the twist at the end is the Samuel L. Jackson stuff. Uh, yeah, because by I that can't... point, we've seen we've seen that Bruce Willis has gone out there and actually tried to become a superhero. But you can, for a lot of this movie, view because he's so sympathetic in his in terms of his backstory. Um, Mister Glass, as we you know, kind of like come to <laughs> come to figure out, he that's that's who he is by the end of the movie. Mr. Glass is you, you. You almost could see him as like the quirky mentor who bring who drives Bruce Willis to become the hero, and not yeah, and not I the mean, guy who's who's long before Willis has turned up embraced the fact uh, that he's. The I villain. can't. I can't remember exactly where I figured out that it was him, but it was a kind of a combination of like, okay, this movie's going to have a twist in it. So what's the narrative twist and the villain's going to be someone we know? Otherwise, what's the point? And there's only, like, four characters in the movie, so it's got to be one of them. <laughs> like, there was a sort of confluence of all those things that made me guess what the ending was. But again, it didn't really matter, because it was like, 
it was a satisfying ending. So that was enough. Like it didn't matter that I guessed it was about him finding out. Yeah. What about you, Seb? How does it work for you as an ending? Like even if, even kind of now going back to it and seeing it, knowing fully full well where it's going, does it feel like the satis- the satisfying payoff to this story? Because um, I think a lot of twist movies can kind of feel like, oh, I didn't see that coming, and then they're not worth it the next time around. I think what marks out early Shyamalan, at least, is that they are endlessly rewatchable in spite well, of I mean, the, what you know, part, is going to pull on you. Part of the point about the ending here is that he literally says at the end, look, you should have known this from the start. Like, yeah. that, you know, his closing speech is essentially, yes, I was the villain all along, and look, didn't you figure out did figure that out from the fact that very early on in the film I told you that I had a supervillain name. Also, yeah. I dress in purple and I'm in a wheelchair. I mean he doesn't say that, <laughs> but like you know um and it's like you know, but you know and okay, that you know, that is one of the ways in which it I think it, it rewards being someone who knows the comic book tropes, but the fact that he dresses in purple means that he's the villain and that is, you know <laughs> Although the apparently that was Samuel L. Jackson's idea. Oh really? Yeah, oh, that's quite interesting because it's like yeah, the the Joker wears purple, the Green Goblin wears purple, Lex Luthor yeah. wears green and purple. It's you know, green isn't so much a villain colour because like heroes and villains I was wear say, green, I think but purple particularly. Samuel L. Jackson um, suggested purple because Bruce Willis was wearing green and it's yeah. complimentary. So yeah, I think that I think um, the hair will have been Samuel L. Jackson's idea. He famously <laughs> he famously yeah. has a hair guy, which um, is fantastic for a guy who famously has no hair. I mean, I, I, I have a, I have a huge issue of dissatisfaction with the ending, but it's, it's not to do with the reveal of Elijah. It's the card. You've mentioned this on the podcast before, haven't you? It's the, it's the end card. Yeah. It's what, just. What's it, the problem with that, Seb? It feels completely at odds with everything that the film is doing tonally and style-wise up to that point it feels to me like it's been added on like if yeah. you if you interpret this film as being in a lot of ways a riff on batman the killing joke which i really do think it is um then you know you've got an ending where you've got this thing where you've got this um you know this superhero in this supervillain that essentially can't really exist without each other like Elijah's purpose in life is to find David and David only knows that he's a superhero because of Elijah so that's your that's your Batman Joker can't exist without each other relationship yeah. the handshake is such an obvious deliberate visual nod to the imminent handshake at the end of Killing Joke and the whole point about Killing Joke is that it has that ambiguous ending of you don't know what happens next. Like, does he let him go? Does he kill him? Which apparently is what Grant Morrison thinks, which is ridiculous, but it is a theory. Um, and, you know, or, or does he turn him over? And like, I, I like the, what, I like what I interpret as what I feel, and I don't know whether this is the case or not, but it feels to me like the film as scripted and shot, ends with David leaving and not knowing what to do with this information and we don't know what he does next but that the captions are there to go oh no it was all fine he got arrested at the end and it's <laughs> that's so, so that's awkward. so David done though isn't it leaving and not knowing what to do next that's <laughs> yeah so I mean that David is done. you know in many ways he's a perfect character for Bruce Willis to play it's very much Bruce Willis in his 
uh, being slightly puzzled by everything <laughs> mode. I like uh, this. Um, this was, and it's a mode that I really like from Bruce Willis because it feels like a, a time during his career when he was willing to act. step. Well, to, to, <laughs> yeah. well, that's that's the thing. But he was willing to step back and not be not be the main attraction to kind of let. I mean, the set. I think the same goes in the Sixth Sense to let the showy stuff happen elsewhere. Mm. But yet, also really dig in and deliver. He get. I mean, there are, this is the thing that, that he spends a lot of this film being quietly grumpy and not much else. But he gets these moments, and there's even things like little moments, like the bit at the start on the train where he's he's flirting with the woman, and when he takes oh, off his wedding yeah. ring, um, the scene um, at the breakfast table with the newspaper when oh, he passes him passes his son the newspaper uh, it, it, like he's for, for Bruce Willis he's doing an awful lot of, of silent acting say, there this, and like, it's great this is still probably my favourite Bruce Willis movie like aside from possibly Fifth Element like performance wise I think he's doing a lot more in this than he's done in anything else because mm. like, he normally he's I mean, just being like generic action guy and he's very amiable mm. but he's not really acting I, I think normally is a hard word to throw at Bruce Willis, given the the kind of the peaks and troughs his career has gone through. <laughs> you you, I, I you do get vast discrepancies in how interested Bruce Willis is at any given time, <laughs> don't you? Yeah, and I and I think he can be fantastic, but I'm just kind of I'm looking at this this stage of his career. I mean, so he had the Sixth Sense and the Whole Nine Yards in 99, 2000, which I don't think the Whole Nine Yards is a great movie, but it was a big hit for him. Um, he's fantastic in Disney's The Kid around then, um, and and then like it seems to go into a bit of a trough after that. And he's he has picked up and done some like <coughs> now and again some interesting stuff since then. I've um, just realised why this conversation is familiar, and it's because we did Sin City two episodes ago. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Which, but then, I, I mean, that I think is a vastly different performance to what he's delivering here, because yeah. yet he seems he seems kind of like restrained in in Sin City, but there's nothing interesting about his performance. Seb, mm-hmm. as you were talking about that scene at the at the breakfast table, I, I I've got the film on on mute in the background just so I can kind of watch it as the podcast progresses. And that scene was on when you were <laughs> talking about it, and I'm watching it, and the kind of they're like, yeah, the really the silent communication between him and his son and this like hiring for your small business. If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role in a given month. Over 70 percent of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what big wireless does. They charge you a lot. We charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. 
Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. The, the, the kind of, you can see the, the emotion for Bruce Willis, for, for David Dunn in that moment of being able to finally connect with his son and to make, to, to have, to know what it's like for his son to be um, properly proud of him. And I think the son, the son has been proud of him before that, but it's like, he hasn't felt like he deserves it. But in that moment he does. And it just, it, it feels like so emotionally rich. And I think, I, I think you give credit to Shyamalan who obviously got, two really strong performances out of Bruce Willis in back-to-back years. Um, but, you know, you just got to say, yeah, I, I don't know whether it's Bruce Willis's best performance, but it's certainly up there. Um, it's certainly, you know, it's, it's, it's a tough one to argue that it isn't. Um, and I, I, you know, I think you're right. I think he gets those moments fairly regularly throughout the film. Like, there's like, the, there's the gun scene as well, which oh. is like, I mean, that is a, you know, even watching it again and, you know, not having seen the film for a long time, you know, knowing that obviously, although I can't, I, I think at that point I couldn't remember if he actually shoots him and it bounces off or if he just puts no. the gun down. It's a tense as hell scene. It really is. Yeah. And it is um, because you, because you feel in that scene and I think, the way that you would obviously see that the first time is that I think you suspect that he is unbreakable, that he does have these, that he, that he's right. But there is that in that scene, there's the panic that a, what if he isn't and B, what if he's right? And what if it does bounce off? And then what, what does that mean for his marriage? And what does that mean for everything else? And, you know, and also just the terror of like this is a kid with a gun in his hand in the kitchen like what if he hurts himself what if he hurt, what if he hurts his mum like it's and that's another one of those Shyamalan doing a kind of like a superhero having a gun pointed at him who's going to be invulnerable to that bullet in so many in so many superhero things that's just cool isn't it when the bullet bounces off him the prospect of that happening in this film <clears throat> is horrifying it's absolutely horrifying and you sense it in that scene that's like Shyamalan's quality as a filmmaker is that he's like this is we were saying just before we started recording like this is the time in his career when people were going like he's the new Hitchcock because he was so good with like suspense and tension well like you know of in, thing, in like, his next film which is a film that gets <laughs> derided for and not without not good reason but it does it's a good, contain it's a good movie it it's does a contain movie. a scene that now admittedly as someone who doesn't go to see horror films it contains a moment that is maybe the scariest thing yeah, I've ever like, seen in even, the cinema I think again we've talked about this possibly not on the podcast before but like that that scene in of the aliens like in the home movie footage yeah that's like, what, yeah yeah I'm I'm someone who does not get affected by horror movies at all but that one like properly fucked me up well that's it I think signs is uh, Shyamalan's last good movie for, in this in that period anyway because I, don't I, care, I, I like I don't it forget. while acknowledging the criticisms yeah 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 I, I, I get I get some of the criticisms but I still think it's effective in what it sets out to do 
Um, I d- the village doesn't work for me, never really has. Uh, Lady in the Water and The Happening and The Last Diabender are flat out really bad, as is After Earth, to be honest. And The Visit, I thought, was an interesting kind of um, return to form for him. But those those first three films, I think the, the one thing that he's fantastic at doing, Shyamalan, is injecting these moments of, like, horror into the everyday. And that's that's why I think that the moments are so scary in this movie that, you know, you could, you could in another context see as triumphant. They're so scary in this film because it, it feels like he's injecting them into real world situations. Like it's so damn beat because it's just like, this is just, it's run of the mill stuff. And the, like a, a superhero uh, or a supervillain, like, causing a train crash in something else might be like the inciting incident in this it it feels it feels real you know it feels it feels like a a, a real world tragedy it's and like you're right it's, i'm thinking as well of the scene where they're like asking you know have you ever been ill have you ever had an injury and like that should be a big sort of in like triumphant moment but the realization mm. that he hasn't comes across as like scary and weird and upsetting. Yeah, and I think you, the 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 way the the way the performances are given and the way the characters are introduced and stuff as well. And and even the way the, the way that they dress. I know you talked about the colors, but like the fact that he's wearing kind of like this like Bruce Willis this schlubby bald guy wearing this like this this greasy mac that he goes out it goes out in whereas You've got the charismatic um, Samuel L. Jackson who has this sympathetic backstory and, you know, looks cool. And you just like, you feel almost throughout the first act. I mean, up to, I mean, to an extent, Samuel L. Jackson disappears from this movie in the se- in the second half <laughs> for, a, for a point when, when we're actually getting into the superheroics. Um, but like early on, you're like, one of them feels like more conventionally the hero than the other one. You know, you don't you don't tend to introduce your hero with him slipping off his wedding ring on a train, <laughs> trying to trying to uh, well le- leering over a younger woman essentially, and creeping her out to the extent that she runs away. You know, it, do, do, do you know what I mean? And so like it 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 feels like it feels like for so long that your that your hero is your villain and your villain's your hero. Mm-hmm. And I'm not I'm not. I'm not entirely sure what Shyamalan's trying to say there, um, but I think it's I think it works for the movie because it, it well maybe maybe just in the fact that it throws you off the scent if nothing more. <laughs> um, I did wonder what what I did want to ask you guys about though, like given that Shyamalan's riffing on comic books, and I know Seb, you've mentioned the Killing Joke um, as like a, a thematic comparison. Quentin Tarantino has said famously that, you know, he thinks this is like the, one of the best Superman movies ever made. Um, <laughs> and that's, that's how the film should have been marketed. Do you, do you see comic book, direct comic book parallels between these two characters and characters in the comics? Is, are there direct parallels or are, are they kind of amalgams of other what, Between characters? David and Superman, you mean? Yeah. So is, is, is David Superman here essentially, or 
is he Batman is like the, the no, killing he, joke thing or is or, or or is he just is the fact that he's just kind of like he's just a regular dude who has these powers th- he's got a spi- he's got a spidey sense as well doesn't there's he there's just a lot of archetype stuff going on i mean even the fact that he's called david dunn yeah. it, it's the the, yeah. uh, the alliterative say, I think, name i um, think he's more of a riff on like sort of 60s marvel characters than anything cuz yeah he 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 is definitely more marvel than dc yeah um cuz he's you know, flawed yeah. And yeah, just a bit. And as, and you know, yeah, Elijah it's it it's stuff like the you know, the villain is always in the wheelchair apart from Professor Xavier. <laughs> um and uh, he wears purple and he has slightly crazy hair and he's called Mr. Glass. You know, it's like mm. the the villains are always Mr. or Doctor rather than something man. Um so yeah, I mean I I, I wouldn't tie it to a specific pairing of characters because that's not really what it's about it is it is about drawing on the archetypes and about well I, mean, I wouldn't even go so far as to say that the film is i don't think the film is really exploring what comics are all about um it's it's obvious that Shyamalan likes them and and likes the kind of the the trappings and the mythology and stuff but i don't think this film ever really is trying to say anything about how we like how what superhero comics are there for and how we relate to them and that kind of thing. Other other than it being sort of that nice little thing that that um, that is this kind of little beacon of hope for Elijah when he's when he's a child. I really like that thing about how um, well <laughs> he gets into comics because his mum gives him them as a present you know that's the tw- that's the twist though isn't it is that it is presented as the beacon of hope for him as a child and then actually and it's wonder- what turns him into a murderous terrorist <laughs> yeah. yeah and so i wonder then whether that's that's the interesting thing that's going on here is that it's not that comic books are presented as like oh you're actually watching a comic book story it's that a a character sees comic books and finds a framework for his life in them and mm. so he kind of he kind of projects comic book tropes into the real world and goes, "Oh well, obviously I must be. I need it's to." It's kind of like, it's kind of like Scott Pilgrim with video games, isn't it? It's the it's the lens through which you view the world. Um, but it's specific. It's the lens through which glass through which uh, Elijah views the world because he, without comic books, would he would he just be this guy with this horrendous illness or would he be or would something else have caused him to <laughs> go down the same route frederick yeah, Wortham was right that's what we're saying here isn't it <laughs> and i do want to shout out again like a lot of the direction from Shyamalan and the way that he presents um the way that he presents uh, uh the two main characters in this film mr glass is so often shot through like we see him through reflection the entire first scene um where the doctor comes and sees elijah's mother is shot in a mirror um the the scene where his mum is talking to him about going outside early on is shot on the reflection on a tv set and then when he goes outside and he looks at the comic book he looks he's looking at it upside down and then the camera even as he turns it round to himself the camera turns around with it so even though he's now looking at it straight, it's still upside down. And so there is, there's this constant reminder, like these 
filmmaking reminders that this guy is the reverse of this. You know, this guy <laughs> See, is, this is this guy is the mirror. This guy is looking at it the wrong way around. This is and the sort of thing to him being the villain. Like I always wonder, like, is this good filmmaking or is it bad? Because on the one hand, it's so overt that you can't miss it, and like you're watching that instead of the film. And on the other hand, it's actually quite clever and does say something about the characters and the story. And it's like, get, is it good or I bad? don't think it distracts, though. I don't think it distracts. I think, I think it does if you, if you get to the point of thinking, like, oh, I see what they're doing. And, like, you still see what they're doing well so, after you've noticed it. I, I don't know. I think sometimes it comes down to, you, are you actively looking for it? Or is it something that, like, what I try and tend to do with movies is the first time I watch them, I, like... If I if I was a critic, actually, like back when I was actually regularly reviewing stuff, I'd sit there with a notepad. But I can't. I I tried not to because I <clears> like to the first time I see a movie, just soak it in and then go. All right, if I if I enjoyed that, I now want to yeah, go. Maybe like, why I'm, did I enjoy it? I'm totally the opposite, what, which is that I as soon as I'm watching a film, I'm pulling it to bits from like the first frame. Like I just can't help myself. Well, sometimes, and I think there's some stuff you notice. But for me, a film like this. I mean, and I can't remember the first time I watched it, and probably when I first watched it, I was too young to be watching it through anything like a critical eye. But the first time I watched it, I was just like, oh, cool. And now when I go back and watch it, I see that stuff. But I don't... uh, Why I don't think it's distracting or why I don't think it detracts from the movie is because it's also really beautifully shot. Like, I think the the way the camera moves so and the cinematographer here is Eduardo Serra who we should mention because I think he's so critical to all of mm-hmm. it. Um, but the so the shot in the TV, for example, I just think it looks really great. I mean, this film is it's it's so kind of like it's so coldly shot. You know, it's like it's like very gray, it's very grey and it's very blue. Um, and I think that when the individual images are still as gorgeous to look at as they are, that even if I'm noticing that stuff, I'm noticing them, but going, yeah, okay, great. <laughs> that looks, that looked really great. Um, and I'm just, I'm willing to give Shyamalan all, all the credit in the world for that because I really don't think it distracts. I think it, in fact, I think it, it gives you those little hints, but it, it helps contribute to the overall mood of the movie. Again, the kind of like the always framing David, it kind of feels like you're taking a step back and you've, you're watching everything through like at a bit of a remove. And I think that's the way that you should be watching the character of David Dunn because he Mm -hmm. is kind of such an insular, um, restrained character that that's, that feels the best way to kind of like coldly observe him from, from one remove. Um, yeah, I, I I think this film is uh, one of the most interesting directed films that we'll get on on the podcast. Oh yeah, for um, sure. Yeah, <laughs> but I I mean I just think I I think Shyamalan became a laughing stock, and I think it's like I say it's it's slightly deserved. I think he he believed his own hype. I think he I think he bought into the wrong aspects of what made him a good filmmaker, hmm. um, and. I mean, certainly if you watch Lady in the Water and kind of watch the stuff that he does with the film critic in that and and <laughs> some other stuff, you're just going, okay, this is a guy who is too up in the idea of M. Night Shyamalan, the filmmaker, and not enough uh, in in what 
what makes it what makes a good Shyamalan movie and continuing to make them. And I'm really hoping that he's back in that mold. Um, and I'm so excited, you guys, to see what happens when we revisit these characters because. <laughs> We know that we know that David Dunn and Elijah are both returning for Glass, um, which is uh, again spoiler. There's the the sequel to both Unbreakable and Split, and will feature will feature Bruce Willis, James McAvoy, Anya Taylor Joy, um, Samuel Jackson. We just found out that Spencer Treat Clark, who plays his son in this, is reprising his role. Oh, nice! Oh, wow! <laughs> yeah. Um, what about Robin Wright? Uh, Robin Wright hasn't been announced yet, but. Um, Elijah's mother, uh, played by I'm just uh, Char- Charlene Woodard, uh, is also reprising her role. Um, so it'd be interesting if Robin Wright does. I think someone else got added to the cast recently, actually. Uh, someone who hasn't been in a who who wasn't in either film. Um, I'll Google that. But yeah, um, what are, are you excited to see these characters again? I mean, like, I don't know whether you guys have got around to watching, if either of you've got around to watching Split yet. But <laughs> I haven't. But I've, of... wa- I've watched. I've watched the the. I don't even know if it's a post credits or if it's just the end. But I've watched the scene with David. <laughs> right. I haven't. Uh, I haven't watched Split because I just everything I saw of James McAvoy in it just made me cringe <laughs> so hard. <laughs> Actually, oh, Sarah Paulson, by the way. Sarah Paulson is the person who's been added okay. to the cast. Yeah, um, I was just like, it is actually. No, sorry, go ahead. Yeah. I was just going to say, like the, the 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 scene is actually it's simultaneously both good and bad. It's good the way it sort of pans to reveal uh, David Dunn there. What's really bad is that that's led into by it's a bunch of people in a diner watching a news report about what's just happened in Split, and a woman and a woman goes, "That's that's like that." That guy fifteen years ago who who <laughs> called it what did he call himself and then like it it, it pans across to David Dunn and he says Mister Glass and I it's like just you, no no one gonna... would ever say no one would ever say oh that thing where someone was a bit evil that's a bit like that guy fifteen years ago do you know where they <laughs> would say that Seb do you know where they'd say that they'd say in, it in a comic in a comic book, book. All right, yes he's nailed it <laughs> and also when you're when you're setting up a backdoor sequel to a film that you made seventeen I know, years you earlier need to, yeah. I think you can I think we can forgive him being as on the nose as possible I do uh, what what I'm intrigued about is for Bruce Willis to have agreed to appear in Split like that. Mm. He must have been sold. Well, either they drove a dump truck full of money up to his house, or he has been sold on whatever Shyamalan wants to do uh, with the next I one. I think Bruce Willis doesn't give a fuck anymore, and he <laughs> has his price and will turn up for it. Okay, but no, what about I mean, Samuel L. Jackson? Samuel L. Jackson is very Jackson will turn up for anything. He'll turn up for a freaking yeah, Mars bar. I was, I was being sarcastic. Okay. Um. <laughs> I think I think that Shyamalan has obviously been talking about wanting to do or being interested in doing a sequel to Unbreakable for a long time. And um I think Bruce Willis has always kind of been on you know, on, on the on on board for it, set kind of saying, Yeah, I mean like if he if he does it, I'm interested, I'm interested in going back to that. It's probably a film that you know, like they had a good working relationship together. It's probably a film that Willis recognises was well received and if it if there's enough buzz out there for them to actually go and make the film, why wouldn't he? And I think it's something that they were kind of kicking around for a while and it sounds like there was kind of like Shamlan was making another film or had an idea for another film and it kind of 
it kind of came back together with what he was originally planning to do for an Unbreakable sequel. Because he said kind of way back when, if I ever make a sequel to this, it'll be very different. Um, and the fact that the fact that he managed to get it out there into cinemas without it being common knowledge is is like such a magic trick in and of himself. I mean, like last year they they were you know they almost got that Blair Witch film out, didn't they? Without revealing it was Blair Witch until they went ah no, do you know what? Uh, let's tell everyone just in case because we're a bit worried. The fact that they got this all the way to cinemas, the fact that they market it just as yeah, it's just it's just a horror movie with James McAvoy in it. Um, and then had this at the end and had everyone kind of on board and waiting to go for a sequel. I, I love, I love just the process of that. I love the, <laughs> like it does, it does to me, it like harkens back to Shyamalan and the showman. And I mean, I'm like, yes. It's, it's sort of interesting, isn't it? How, if you look at the context of when Unbreakable came out, like the most popular superhero movie was Batman and Robin <laughs> or like a stretch sort of, you had like Superman, Batman, Batman Returns, and then a bunch. Well, it's coming of, off the back of a bunch of it's, absolute it's, crap. It's Blade and Batman and Robin in the kind of the years leading up to this, isn't it? Yeah, and then like, and uh, yeah, I you, you is, this did come out after X Men, but you can't judge it in relation to that. Yeah, because, no, it's just yeah, Unbreakable. Like, it, so. was far ahead of its time, and now it's kind of nice that it's come back around, and he's getting to maybe reap those mm. benefits a little bit. Well, it's the thing, because I think what's interesting about Unbreakable is what I was saying to you before about, you know, I don't think it really gets into what comics mean. I think it's using them as a hook. And I think part of the reason for that is, in 2000, would anyone be interested in that? Because we haven't had a decade (laughs) and a half of massively successful (laughs) comic book-based movies. Now that we have, if he's going to do that with the next, and I'm not saying he necessarily is, but what I would like to see with the next one is a bit more of a, you know, taking into account the context of those last 17 years worth of movies, um, doing more of a riff on on that. I'm not, you know, saying again, do it as a straight up parody. I mean, that has already been kind of done, but a little bit more of it, you know, assuming a bit more understanding of people, of you know, comic books being in people's consciousness, even if they don't necessarily read them. Well, but comic book and superhero tropes, yeah, su- yeah, superhero tropes are much more in people's consciousness now. Um, also, I think people are more accepting of a collision of genres between superhero and other genres. Um, you know, it, it, I would continuously argue that superhero is not a genre, um, and like, <laughs> you know, plenty of recent films have shown us that. So again. Yeah, I, th- I think there's scope for another film that's like Unbreakable, but gets to actually be a bit more confident in being about what it's about. Hmm. Yeah, well, well, it'd be interesting to see what the focus is. So the the, the logline, from what I can tell, is that uh, David Dunn is chasing down Crumb in his Beast persona. So that's kind of like the final personality that McAvoy assumes in Split. Uh, while Mr. Glass is revealed to have masterminded events uh, for both men. So, and it's interesting as well that kind of like the, I think the, this is like a superhero universe where the powers are grounded in uh, both, both kind of like a physical illness almost. So like, I think uh, Shyamalan 
is playing with mental disorders in Split, but perhaps not in the best taste. But he is, he's kind of taken like a real a real disorder and kind of twisted it to to become a, a comic booky version of that. Um I think in the same way he has done with uh both characters in, in Unbreakable. Um uh, but there's also trauma kind of at the, the centre of it for all of them. Mm-hmm. Um and from what I've heard about Split, that that's that's very kind of central to that as well, and not only to the main character, but to the to the Anya Taylor Joy character as well. Um, so yeah, I, I I'm interested in a you know a, a M Night Shyamalan superhero cinematic universe grounded in kind of like in more in trauma than in any kind of like normal superhero tropes. And you're right, Seb. I think it would be fascinating if he then does take a step back and kind of look at comic books because the first two films, it sounds like are both films that like you're going, you like we're kind of taking a step back and not really wanting to play our hand too much in that. This is a comic book movie. Once you've got an unbreakable sequel that features all those characters, that's up front. We all know now that that is a movie playing with comic book tropes which would be the perfect time to then go, okay, let's examine them. I mean, do you think, let's do you think it's, going to, it's going to do that with comic books, though, or do you think it's going to do it more with movies? Because that's, like, for me, suddenly turning Unbreakable into a cinematic universe is... It, it's more of a riff on what's been happening with movies than it is with what's been done with comic books well, over the years. I mean, I, I, I use the phrase cinematic universe from the way that... Shaman's talked about this. It sounds like it is the third part of a story, and that it is, and that that's it. It's not going to be then launched. Well, no, yeah, but all like, of these different ones. But it's just, it's just going. Here's here's an opportunity to bring these characters back. But I mean, doing doing together. the thing of linking one movie to another in the final scenes, like that, is a superhero movie trope, isn't it? Of saying like, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> this is actually with that, and the next movie you're going to see them both together, like that. Yeah. You know, it's. I'll be interested to see if. Glass is more of him talking about like the the way that superheroes have dominated cinema and whether or not that's a good thing you know that you know that's what I'll be expecting of it more than what about comic books yeah I also I mean I, my, my other hope for it is it just it's Shyamalan having fun again <laughs> I was saying I think that like I, I think he he got bogged down for a while, and you can you can feel in the visit that this is a guy just who, who seems to be enjoying what he's doing, seems to be enjoying like just letting the shackles off, and also feeling confident as a filmmaker again. I really think that is what, what kind of chips away at Shyamalan was that he started to not like, he believed his own hype, and then it flipped too far in the other direction, um, and. I think when when like when you see how how confident in a filmmaker he is in this and the sixth sense, like he totally believes that his ending is going to stand up to scrutiny. He totally believes that it's that his audience are going to be taken on the journey that he expects them to be taken on, um, and he's proven right in both of these. Um, and I and I think to an extent in signs. Uh, not not quite <laughs> as much as he is in these first two, um, yeah. And that's what that's what I want to see him doing again. And I can't lie, like just the the idea of a sequel to this movie, not even because it's a superhero movie, just because I think like this is a really this is a really great movie, um, and it's it's got 
such a style and panache to it, but it's also doing fun superhero-y stuff. Um, well, I mean, that's yeah, the thing, I, isn't there? I, I want to see when, more of it. I want to see when more you of it. see a superhero origin story. You always want to know, like, and now what? Like in the movies, in the comics, like that's that's always the lingering question of now you're a superhero. So now what? Well, now he's. I mean, presumably he's been chasing down bad guys for the past Not quite. fifteen years. <laughs> well, <laughs> well, maybe he's well, been Mr. hanging Glass around for fifteen years, waiting for another one to turn up. Yeah. Perhaps just never, never taking off that that man. Mm-hmm. Is he in? Is he in it in that scene? Is uh, no, he's not cape? actually. No, he's he's wearing a shirt <laughs> with his name on it, so it suggests that he's still working as a security guard. It's like he's wearing a uniform. It's like a kind of light blue shirt with a name badge on it. <laughs> yeah, I would suggest he loses the red baseball cap that he wears. In the <laughs> yeah, God, can't look at one of those anymore can you without uh yeah um yeah so is, is there anything else we want us to say about unbreakable um itself um it's it's funny isn't it i think it's plot wise there's there's weirdly not an awful lot to it the, I, it I find it quite interesting that it doesn't have a third act i don't think I think it. I think it has it. It very definitely. It's, it's particularly if you look at, at the kind of the superhero origin story tropes. It has a. It has the first act. It has the setup. It has the second yeah. act with him becoming the superhero. It has that big sequence with him rescuing the family. Yeah, and no, I. Do, I and then it. you go to the gallery, and you <laughs> kind of expect that something big is going to happen, and it just doesn't. It just it ends all of a sudden. It's like, oh, okay. Um, I, you know, I don't know if there's anything kind of missing there. I do know that, like, the most expensive scene in the film was cut out. It's it's on the deleted scenes, but it's Mr. Glass on a roller coaster. Um, but, um, yeah, other than that, you know, I don't know if there was anything intended to sort of... But as I say, I mean, I've, I, I don't know if Shyamalan's talked about it. I don't know if there's any kind of evidence out there of what was in shooting scripts and stuff. But it really feels to me like not only is the ending abrupt, but that it somewhere along the way there was pressure to go hang on you can't let the terrorist get away with it once he's been revealed because it's just (laughs) everything about the tone of that scene and the way that david reacts to him and the and the relationship they've had throughout the film it just does not seem like the next thing that happens is oh he gets arrested and gets put (laughs) in a mental institution it's not even like it's the way it says like he he came went to the authorities or whatever yeah, so it, just, it, just, it doesn't feel right, does it? It doesn't even feel like those words have been written by M. Night Shyamalan, <laughs> like you know the way that he scripts the rest of the film. Uh, it doesn't seem like his kind of language, you know. Um, <laughs> but I, I mean, I, I, I mean, really... aside from those concerns with the ending, like I, I, I really do. I knew going into this, like not having seen it for probably over ten years, but like I knew going into this, this is meant to be a really good film, and I remember enjoying it. I really did enjoy rewatching it. I think it is a yeah. great film. It's 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 flawed, but I think it's a I think it's a really good film. Um, I think I think in a difficult role, um, Robin Wright is very good as well. Um, yeah, it's. it's um, I don't. I don't. I wouldn't call this out as like one of those movies that we we criticize for its female roles. I just think it's. I think she is she's a function in the story in the same way that almost every character who isn't uh, who isn't Bruce Willis or Samuel L. Jackson is, you know. Mm. Um, and 
yeah, I think I think she does she does the best with a bit with a bit of a thankless role. Um, I, I think Spencer Tree Clark's pretty good, and it must have been absolutely horrific for that poor kid who had to follow up Haley Joel Osment. <laughs> I was going to say it's like yeah, it's like sense. he's a guy who looks a bit like Haley Joel Osment, but isn't, and like yeah, is having to be the kid in a Night Shyamalan film. Um, mm. I think he's yeah, he's fine. He's not really has he done much else? I don't remember. Like uh, he's, he seeing was, him in anything. But. He was the son. He was the son of um, Baron von Strucker in Agents of Shield. <laughs> Amazing! Wow! Yeah, yeah. <laughs> oh, and he, was, um, he was in the Mad Men finale, apparently as well. There we go. Um, yeah, uh, I, I, I do want to go back to what you're saying, kind of about the structure of the film set, because I agree the ending does feel abrupt. It's it's a very oddly paced film because of because you know it's it's an hour forty five long, and it feels like so much of kind of like the iconic moments of this film are up are up early in the first in the first forty five minutes to an hour, and it feels like like I said like after after we kind of lose Samuel L. Jackson as such like an integral part of the narrative, um, it's when he falls down the stairs, and which I have to say is one of the most. I rewatched this a couple of months ago uh, with my wife, and she like you know, gasped and winced and turned away from the screen during that scene where Samuel L. Jackson's falling down the stairs. Yeah. Because, that at, is because cool. at that point at that point you you're so aware and the way that he builds up the tension in that scene, you're so you know, you you kind of can almost like and, and the way that you see you you see the cane shatter before you see any of the impacts for him. You kind of hear stuff. Then you see the cane shatter and it's like, and it's then Shyamalan going, and that's what's happening to his bones right now. Mm. It's horrific. It really is horrific. Um, but after that point in the movie, it's weird. There are, there are kind of like really good bits here and there, but it does, it does feel kind of oddly paced. And you're right. The, the, the bit where he goes out and, and does his superheroing, you expect to be half an hour from the end. <clears throat> And he and he finishes it, and there's two more scenes. There's the mm. there's the breakfast table, and there's the gal- there's the gallery scene. Um, it feels abrupt, but I also I also do really like it, and it does. I don't know. It does to me kind of feel like the end of a first issue of a comic. You know, like everything's ramped up, and then like we read the last two pages, and like, all right, okay, and so now you, and you want to come back next time now, don't you? Which he just. Like I, I kind of feel like a lot of these films, like you know, you're like, oh, why are people still going on about a bloody sequel for this film? Just because it's just because it's superhero related. But I do watch the end of this film and go, oh no, I want to see more. I do want to see more. <coughs> I know why we've been. I know why we've been bugging him for fifteen years. <laughs> um, yeah. So I'm, I'm, I'm definitely glad that it's happening. Uh, so yeah, we're we're all thumbs up on Unbreakable, are you guys? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I, th- I, I, I think it's. I mean, as a film, I think it's great. As a riff on the genre, I think it's. You know, it's not as interesting now as it was in two thousand. But I think in two thousand, it's a very strong riff on the genre. I think we've just had more done with it since. Yeah, I have. Uh, I have one question before we go. Um, where does it make less sense that? Water is the ah, yeah. See, when we were talking it, about science before, here, I was like, or is it science? <laughs> I think it's. I kind of think it's worse here because 
comes out not it doesn't really feel connected it's like oh the, the, does the hero have to have a he has to have a kryptonite doesn't he so let's well, that's the thing like water? most well, superheroes don't have a kryptonite only superman has a kryptonite yeah and also they, i mean it feels like it's only there because there needs to be an explanation for how he can have nearly drowned as a kid but if you're drawing on superman like there's plenty of versions of superman where he doesn't have his powers as a kid and only gets them later and it's not even like it's there as a possibility for why he got injured in the car crash because it's fairly it's reasonably early on that that elijah concludes that david wasn't actually injured in the car crash i think it's um, more and interesting it's just, if the car crash is when his powers manifest you know yeah and, and it'd also be almost interesting if he was like if he was a sickly kid mm-hmm. yeah I exactly guess, i guess yeah. just but then he wouldn't be the, a direct opposite so yes that's that's yeah. the thing that is the thing. um and it's the problem with it being water is just how often is it going to be the case that he's going to be trying to be a superhero and then it starts to rain <laughs> But then is 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 that what ah? But then is that why he wears the well? That's, that's the thing, what, isn't ah, it? That's why, that's why he wears the, the poncho. Yeah. That's because that actually protects him from the rain, so he can actually still. Yeah, have the thing his is, I don't think okay, so that, that water literally takes what, away his falls, powers. Like it's just he, falls he can into drown. A pool. But they establish yeah. water as his weakness, and so when he's doing the big fight and stuff, they're like, let's put around lots of water because then that implies jeopardy. Mm. Like that's yeah. I think that's a filmmaking trick more than a narrative one. <laughs> and if and if it's if he's the mirror to glass, if Mister Glass gets rained on, does he like? Games? <laughs> does he become powerful? <laughs> strength, <I'm sorry. laughs> no, well, you know, it's it, just it, a bit. It's just a bit silly, isn't it? It's silly on, on in the same way that aliens <laughs> come to a oh, planet God. that is seventy percent water. To, well, actually, to the, the, when the other reason, though, if 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 water is his weakness, like. He's got a lot of that inside him, so should, surely he should never have his powers because he's literally always in contact with water <laughs> because he's made of it. <laughs> I buy it as he can. Okay, so he can drown. Yeah. That's that's how you can kill him. It's like it, it's like um, I don't know, you de- decapitating certain mutants or whatever. That's how you can yeah. do it. De- Wolverine can be drowned, apparently, or at least Wolverine's son could be drowned because that's how he killed him. Hmm. Or Wolverine could be drowned in adamantium, like happens to Lady Deathstroke. Yeah, that's also how he drowned, <laughs> and that's how he died, is that he got encased in yes. adamantium. So. Yeah, I've, 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 canon. I've, I've seen that. In fact, I might own that comic. I got given a copy. <laughs> um, so, yeah, I had a shiny cover, which um, <laughs> works for Seb, so it works for me. <laughs> um, yeah, uh, I think that's everything. Um, what I would like to put to the listeners, and we're not going to do this anytime soon... Uh, but we've been having lots of kind of like agonizing on the podcast about whether we should cover split and when we should cover split. Um, so it would be good to hear from you listeners, whether that's something you want us to do soon, because we're aware again, that it's like, it's a movie that is not supposed to be very comic booky until the twist at the end. And then you can kind of see that he's playing with some tropes. Um, so we're wondering, yeah. Whether, whether you'd like us to do it and if we should be in any hurry to get to it. Should we get to it before Glass, basically, which I think is a film that we will almost certainly cover when it is released on the podcast. Um, so maybe we'll put something out on Twitter and you can, or just tweet us and let us, let us know what you think about that. Um, yeah, but that was Unbreakable. Um, should we get some recommendations based on Unbreakable, you guys? Yes. <laughs> Seb, do you want to go first? <laughs> Go on then. Yeah, this is a this is a tricky one because I I do think that um well we talked before we talked off mic before about how I think the best thing to recommend for this is something that's already been done which we did for Kickass uh which was Superman's Secret Identity. 
which uh, I loved, by the way. It was well, it I is. It's, it's one of it's one of my favorite recommendations on the podcast. I own a copy myself now, so it's 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 legitimately one well. of the greatest comics ever published. If if you somehow have never read it, listeners, then do so off the back of this because it's. I mean that that it, the premise of that is what if somebody discovered they had superpowers like Superman in a world where you know who Superman is and that he's a comic book character. And, oh, it's just wonderful. It's just it's a perfect comic. I, it is one of those I just go back to every so often and, and just give it another reread because it's I just get so much joy out of it. But I'm not recommending that this time because you've already done it and you've already raved about it. Um, I am going to actually suggest an, a further volume of something that you've previously read on the podcast, Ooh. though. Because um, it's probably in, in which case, Deb, it's probably something that I've said on the minisode, and so I really like this. I, I, pro- I'm probably going to read some more of this, and never got around to doing it. I <laughs> yeah, say but it I, so often on the podcast, and I'm like, I, I really, I wish I had the time to actually do this. So it's great that. But you I am going to annoy you by getting you to skip on a volume because I know you hate. Oh, so you might, you, you might have to just read the second volume as well. Um, <laughs> I, I kind of got to thinking about even though this film isn't really meta it is about comics and and about comics as a form and a, and a, and like the kind of historical context of them so you so it it is kind of a, a meta commentary on comics in a sense so i thought about comics that are meta textual and so i landed on the most obvious one which is the third and final volume of grant morrison's run on animal man which is called deus ex machina uh, I don't know if you did go on and read more Animal Man after reading no, the first I never volume. Got, never um, got around to it. So, as I say, you can read the second volume if you want, but the third volume, I think, is, is self-contained enough as a story. I mean, actually, there's kind of a through thread, but there's also a few individual stories that um, it hops around between. But the, the through thread through that is is Morrison playing his end game of turning Animal Man into a comic that is about the fact that it's a comic. I don't know if you already know or have have had spoiled what happens in the last issue. Issue 26, the last issue of the volume, the last issue of Grant Morrison's run, is one of the most famous single issues of the modern era for a very specific reason, but I don't know <coughs> if you know what that reason is or not. I think, do you know what? Probably yes, but I can't remember, so I, I, I'll imagine, what, I'll imagine yeah. what will happen is I will read it and go... Oh yeah, that's 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 the thing that's in yeah. the back of my head. So I'm I'm not going to say it's anything like this, and I'm not going to say it's really an inspiration for this because actually, again, the other thing I probably would have recommended was Killing Joke, but you did that a long time ago as well. That um, was on our Batman 1989 episode, which is like our second ever episode, I think. Second, second uh, or third, yeah, yeah, very early on. Um, but yeah, so as I say, it doesn't really have much connection to this other than it it, it it's a meta riff on on the meaning of superhero comics so uh see how you get on with it in fact i'm just reminiscing that was that was so long ago that i remember recording that minisode and being genuinely nervous about talking about comics <laughs> uh, like i was like i don't have i'm just some bloody idiot who knows nothing about this and now i'll be going do you know what i thought there was some problematic stuff in the killing joke and the internet <laughs> would hate me <laughs> well, i just don't give a shit anymore i still don't know anything about comics but i just talk about them anyway um, okay, James, what are you going to recommend? Okay, me? this actually came to me mid-record. Uh, and I think Seb will oh. see where I'm coming from with it. Um, which is that this is a, a miniseries from 2001, uh, written by someone called Paul Jenkins, who I don't think you've encountered before. Doesn't ring a bell. Um, mm. 
And the the series I'm talking about is called The Century. <laughs> and essentially it's the story of a sort of middle middle aged well, maybe not middle aged, but a sort of an adult guy, he's like married and living a kind of normal life and then discovers that he's the most powerful superhero that has ever lived. Um, right, okay. And this is set within the Marvel Universe. Uh, and so yeah. it's sort of retroactively re- revealed that he's this guy called the Sentry who essentially they covered up the fact that he's a superhero to him because he's mentally ill. Um, And I think there are quite a lot of parallels with David Dunn in the character of Robert Reynolds, who is the Sentry. Um, in the Robert Rodney Reynolds. <laughs> I don't know what you're talking about. I assume that's a reference to something. It's just Ryan Reynolds' middle name is Rodney. Right. Okay. Um, <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> and again, it it kind of deconstructs sort of sixties superheroes through the lens of like this character who ostensibly existed but has been forgotten. The important yeah. thing to note about the Sentry is that he became one of the worst things <coughs> about Marvel yeah, comics. But at this point, at this point, he's fine. It's just what got done with him afterwards. Yeah, in like th- if this series was all a Sentry that existed, that would be great. Yeah, because like it's a really fun and interesting sort of look at superheroes in a kind of metatextual, but not in a Grant Morrison way. Well, like, in a fact, bit there was even to me as well, James. Bit Legionish, yeah, a little bit maybe. Mm-hmm. If you like Legion, okay. I mean, there was a <laughs> there was an interesting thing, which is when Sentry was announced, they kind of pitched it as. Did they even say Stan Lee created him? They pitched it as if yes, like it they was did. I think it was was Marvel. it Stan Lee and John Romita were supposed to have. No, it was. Done they it. said it was a penciler called Artie Rosen. That's right. Then they invented the pencil. Yeah, but they yeah. invented the pencil. But who 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 actually did it? It was somebody with quite a retro style. <clears throat> it yeah, it might have been someone John like Romita. Javier Polito or something. No, well, it wouldn't be John Romita because I think he was I think he was dead by then. Yeah, but um, I've got yeah, a good yeah. question. Anyway, that's that's yeah. That's so like they came up with detail. this like fake backstory for the character, which. Like I say, it was quite sort of meta at the time, but a lot of people treat it now as if, like, oh, the Sentry was a hoax character, and it's like, it it wasn't a hoax. It was like a marketing spin. It was kind of the way way that they did the announcement in Wizard. There was a feature in Wizard magazine specifically that was, this old stuff has been found. And that was was kind of a hoax. But it it was a hoax... As a marketing gimmick, yeah. essentially. It wasn't that the whole existence of the character was a hoax, it's that the hoax was a gimmick to sell the character that they had created. Yeah, and I think as soon as you read the comic, you re- you see why it wasn't a hoax. Like, it was, it's kind of like... It's part of the... Yeah, it's part of the Part content. of the premise, yeah, isn't it? Yeah, part of the premise, yeah. yeah. Anyway, I think there's a lot of interesting stuff to read in, into that, especially in the context of it being a comic that came out, like, the year after Unbreakable. Can I, ju- can I just read? <laughs> just because I was just hopping onto his Wikipedia page because I was trying to find um, who had done like the artwork and stuff. Um, when I was talking about like what was used with him, what was done with him afterwards, like when he came into the Avengers, um, there's a line in the Sentry's Wikipedia entry that says, Newsarama ranked the Sentry as the third worst Avengers member, describing him as 
A schizophrenic powerhouse who somehow managed to make that combination of words actually mean a whiny, self-possessed MacGuffin character whose personal lameness is only outweighed by the lameness of the conceits that are required for his existence to make any sense. (laughs) Wow. Sounds pretty lame. (laughs) Say what you mean, guys. (laughs) I mean, the problem was Bendis got his hands on him. Wasn't it? And then Paul Jenkins. Among among other things. Paul Jenkins Jenkins. shit. Yeah, exactly. This was when Paul, Paul Jenkins, Jenkins was like the next yeah. big thing, though. So. Yeah, that never really went anywhere, did it? Yeah. Okay, uh, shall we move on to our final section of the podcast, uh, which is the pitch? Um, I mean, uh, this this one's pretty pretty on the button. Um, <laughs> what I want to know, you guys, we are now getting an unbreakable sequel in a way. Um, so, but what I want to know is. Pitch me the unbreakable sequel that has nothing to do with James McAvoy. Pitch me the unbreakable <laughs> sequel that is purely a sequel to Unbreakable. Um, and maybe this could have come out in 2002, you know, a couple of years afterwards. Maybe it could be coming out now. Um, it's you're, you're free to pick to do whatever you want with these characters. The sequel to Unbreakable without James McAvoy. What have you got for me, uh, Seb? Um, so I, I would look at the the next sort of um, well, having already established that um, having already established himself as a superhero by resolving a kidnapping case, um, I would follow on to the next kind of um, kidnapping rescue that that David Dunn goes on after he's turned uh, Elijah into the police. Um, so he actually um, goes to Indiana um, and investigates a case where several women have been kidnapped by, um, an insane reverend (laughs) and kept in an underground bunker. Um, and he rescues them and, uh, and we follow, um, one of the, one of them, the adventures of one of them as as she tries to adjust to adult life, having been held captive since she was a teenager. She might move to New York, maybe, um, you know, could be a bit, bit, maybe be a bit more lighthearted, bit of comedy potential to it. I don't know. Um, but yeah. Uh, um, I mean, I, I, I realise in retrospect, I teed you up for that, Seb. Uh, you did knock it out of the park. My only worry is that would mean it's not set in Philadelphia, so we're probably not getting Shyamalan back to direct. That's a good point. Which, which is an issue. Um, but yeah, I, um, I do like that. <laughs> I also like how... Um, like it basically, if you switch out the word females for Bruce Willis, the the the, the <laughs> Bruce Willis is strong, guess. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's perfect. It's perfect. I mean, if they can if they can negotiate some kind of rights deal for that song for the sequel, <laughs> yeah. James, you're gonna struggle. What have you got? Uh, the way I would do a sequel to Unbreakable is to go full cinematic universe on it. Um, so. David Dunn meets all the characters from all of the other M. Night Shyamalan films, like, and they form an Avengers-style team uh, with Mr. Glass putting it together, for obvious reasons. <laughs> so, like, they have uh, the lady from Lady in the Water. I assume there's a lady in it. I've not actually seen it. They have... Um, yes, it's Bri- Bryce Dallas Howard. Yeah, okay. Yeah. So they have the lady. Uh, they have one of the aliens from Signs. Uh, they have Ghost they have Bruce Willis. They have Airbender. Ghost Bruce Willis. We, you can't have that because of the rights problems. It's got to all, all be his original characters. Uh, they have Will Smith from After Earth because we know he's not no stranger to appearing in a bad superhero franchise. Uh, and they team up and fight some James McAvoy, I guess. You know, someone. 
No, I said James McAvoy can't well, he, be in it. That's okay, the one. he's not. They they fight one of James McAvoy's other personalities. Yeah, who is not James McAvoy? Oh, right. Okay. Fine. I'll I'll, I'll let Michael you have Fassbender. It. Um, <laughs> are you bringing anyone anyone in for the visit? Yeah, the house from the visit. That's where they live. The the house from the visit. <laughs> I like the rapping kid in the visit. <laughs> yeah, he can be in it too. Sure, bring them all in. Yeah, yeah. He gets a poopy diaper rubbed yep. in his face. Oh, um, M. Night Shyamalan is, is in it as every character that he he's cameoed as. So he's played in all <laughs> of his films. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, no, I, I mean, I like that, James. Um, I mean, Seb wins. Oh, come on! Um, <laughs> I mean, mostly because Never underestimate be going for the obvious joke. <laughs> you, yeah. you already did it. <laughs> I just think going from Unbreakable to Unbreakable Kimmy Schmidt is going to be a, you know, a fascinating transition. <laughs> Damn it. God. To be clear, because it's a sequel to a, a, a superhero movie, the title ha- actually has to be Unbreakable colon Kimmy Schmidt. I like it. Captain America, The Winter Soldier, Thor, The Dark World. I would, genu- I would genuinely watch a superhero movie where Kimmy Schmidt gets superhero powers. <laughs> I mean, that could happen in Kimmy Schmidt. I think they should call it, to be fair, I think the sequel should be called Two Unbreakable with the number two. <laughs> two Unbreakable, Two Furious. Yeah, exactly. Electric Boogaloo. Yeah, okay, great. Well, so Seb wins the pitch this week, um, and that is it for this week's podcast. Um... If you're enjoying the show, then please do subscribe on iTunes, Stitcher, Player FM, or your podcast app of choice. You can support us on Patreon at patreon.com forward slash, uh, forward slash cinematic Ooh, universe. Uh, we, uh, we're running a competition where you can win an exclusive, I say exclusive, you can win a Marvel Legends Spider-Man figure if you're a, one of our Patreon backers. And Ooh. also, uh, on the subject of Patreon, I hope by the time this episode comes out, we'll also have put out, it's already recorded, uh, our Batman Nightfall episode exclusive to Patreon backers. So if you want to hear me and David Hartrick talking for about an hour and three quarters about 1990s Batman comics, <laughs> then uh, subscribe. Yeah, and I think um, it uh, and, uh, another nice little thing that we uh, could ask our listeners to do in terms of getting back to us if there are any patreon uh, um, exclusive stuff that you particularly say you particularly like uh james to talk about a certain thing or me to talk about a certain thing or seb to continue doing his um his chats with david about um these big kind of crossover eventy stuff like if there's something that you're you're like oh that'd be great then suggest it to us and if we think it's a good idea we'll probably do it because we're looking for ideas for our patreon exclusive stuff um, anyway, so. the, whole, the whole point of it is to give people what they yeah. want to hear. So um, you know, yeah. yeah, we want to enrich your podcasting lives. So help us do that. Uh, yeah, so that was Patreon. Um, you can find more episodes of the podcast at cinematicuniverse.com. Um, you can get in touch via Facebook on Twitter at cine underscore verse, or you can send us an email to editorial at cinematicuniverse.com. Um, and guys, what I thought we haven't done for a while, we haven't plugged our personal Twitter accounts, have we? I'm at Joe Cunningham 14. Where can our listeners find the both of you? Uh, I'm at James Hunt. And I'm at Seb Patrick. Because uh, yeah. we, we, we got our names on Twitter. <laughs> well, James didn't originally have his name. James used to be J.R. Hunt. But then I fought off. He got, he got his name from the Dead Formula 1 I fought one off driver. a Dead Formula 1 driver gimmick account. <laughs> to get mine. I've n- 
I've never been able to wrestle mine back. Um, I should also say I've started really um, getting back into Letterbox. So if you want to follow me on Letterbox, that's uh, Joe Cunningham fourteen as well. Um, I've become a little bit addicted. I love. It. I, I feel like with like, I really like Letterbox as a thing, but I feel like the point at which I lost track of actually tracking what I was watching, it was then impossible to recover again. Yes. Also, also, I stopped seeing as many movies because I had a child. So my letterboxed account just became, oh, I've I've rewatched half of an animated film or that kind of thing. <laughs> so, um, yeah. Well, if you but it is good. I, I I like it as a site, and it's a nice way to keep up with what people are doing. So I'll go and have a look at your profile myself. But it just it'll just be good for our listeners. They'll see. Oh, that's why Joe's been banging on about that certain thing because because David Lynch is stuck in his head, or he's been watching as I have recently lots of Marilyn Monroe movies. Anyway, I digress. Thanks for listening, you guys, and we'll see you next week. Goodbye. Goodbye. No capes. Isn't that my decision? Do you remember Thunderhead? Tall, Storm Powers, nice man, good with kids. Listen, he... November 15 for 58. All was well, another day saved, when his cape snagged on a missile fin. Thunderhead was not the brightest bold. Strasselgale, April 23rd, 57. Cape caught in a jet turbine. You can't generalise about these things. Metaman, express elevator. Diner guy, snagged on takeoff. Splashdown, sucked into a vortex. No capes. <laughs> you missed your true calling. I got very so. close to your Adam Buxton. Uh. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that was too much fun. Cinematic Universe returns in two weeks' time with The Incredibles. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns.